She was drunk. <laughs> I don't know what MTV's internship program is like. USA! USA! Wait a minute. All the morphine you can eat. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that envies your self-respect and your ability to sleep at night. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are married. Well, we're old acquaintances, really. Hmm. <laughs> Internationally, uh, it was a quiet week for us. Paraguay did finally show up on our statistics properly. Hooray! So I was glad to see that. Uh, and we do also have one new country, which is Austria. Ooh. So, willkommen. Thanks to everyone, and thanks for uh, hanging out with us on Facebook and following at 5 Maggie Smiths on Twitter. Especially at Abisi. I know. Oh my gosh, you guys. Yes. This is so cool. (laughs) So I'm like, you know, tending to the watering and feeding of our Twitter feed. (laughs) Right. And I see there's this guy named Adewale who is, you know, friended us. I'm sorry, not friended us. What is this, MySpace? No, it's Twitter. <laughs> anyway, so I click on it because like, I'm like, that guy looks so familiar. Like, is it somebody that I've met before? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, only if you mean, have I watched him on such fantastic television series as HBO's Oz uh-huh. and ABC's Lost? That's right. He played uh, Simon Adebisi, mm-hmm. who was the extremely uh, brutal Nigerian inmate who you really did not want to share a pod with. <laughs> that's uh, right. That's all we will say to protect... The delicate sensibilities of our, <laughs> of our Downton Abbey viewers. Yes. Uh, but then you probably are more familiar with him in his role as Mr. Echo right. on uh, Lost. Although, to be fair, we actually stopped watching Lost in protest <laughs> after, spoilers, his character died. Yes, and that's literally, in fact, true. It's absolutely true. Yeah. But yeah, it was very exciting. His, his name is not Adebisi, though that's what we always call him. Yeah. Because it's easier to say than Adewale Akinoye Agbaje. That's which, true. He actually, I was reading some like interviews and stuff with him, and he goes by Triple A. Yeah. For that very reason. Yeah. So understand. I would probably do the same. Yeah. Um. So thank you so much, Adewale, for following us. Or probably more accurately, thanks to your assistant I, for noticing that people <laughs> were following Hugh Bonneville and us or something. I'm, I'm not sure how it works out, but... Maybe he's angling for a role on the next series. I think we should make that happen, especially when we finally get a copy of that Black Edwardians book. That That's, We've been talking on Twitter. There's a book called uh, Black Edwardians by Jeff Green, which is very hard to find and very expensive when you do find it. Hmm. But we're going to try and get an interlibrary loan and do a history segment about Black Edwardians and uh, maybe come up with a petition or something for uh, Julian Fellows <laughs> yeah. to diversify a little bit because contrary to popular belief, including an Irish character uh, <laughs> in today's modern society is not actually that progressive. Yeah. Now on to telegrams from our cousins. Uh, we have a lot this week. Okay. Uh, thank you. We really enjoy getting emails, so please yeah. don't stop sending them. It makes us feel alive. It does make us feel alive. Uh, cousin Susanna from Vermont writes, Hi, Kelly and Tom. I smiled when you mentioned ragtime in your last episode because how's this for two degrees of separation? McGee starred in the film adaptation, and they filmed part of it at the house of a middle school classmate of mine. Ooh. Yeah. Which she says, makes me absolutely nothing, but whatever. I beg <laughs> to differ. Yeah. Back to the letter. 
Anyway, in other news, I love your historical segments because I, too, am a history geek. My great-grandmother was a socialite in Paris before the war, but volunteered with the Red Cross as a nurse and died of the flu when my grandmother was 10. I have lots of portraits that I'll send along of her amazing Edwardian dresses and the most enormous hats that, by comparison, make Cora look like she's wearing a sock on her head. Carry on, dears. Five Maggie Smiths all around. Thank you so much, Susanna. And we would absolutely love to see uh, some of the photos of your great-grandmother's dresses. That yeah. all sounds really interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, so if you can send us the files, we'll post them on the Tumblr and make sure everybody knows uh, where to check them out. Yeah. Last episode, we were wondering if Mary is getting makeup on her gloves every time she buries her face in her hands, and Cousin Lauren has the answer. Dear Cousin Kelly and Cousin Tom, I'm sending this telegram in response to your question in your last podcast about makeup and what, if anything, Mary might be smearing all over her kid gloves every time she goes into hopeless mode. Because I suffer from Downton Abbey Nerd Syndrome, aka DANS, I actually have an answer for you. Per Anne Nosh Oldham, hair and makeup designer for both Series 1 and 2, her biggest challenge was making the girls look as though they aren't wearing any makeup at all. At that time, only whorish girls and actresses wore blusher and that sort of thing. That's a quote from Nosh. To keep the ladies looking camera-ready but unmade-up looking, she uses a mix of two foundations, Armani and Chanel, and dyes the eyelashes of all the female actresses. McGee also gets some false eyelashes. The only actress who wears no makeup at all is Leslie Nickel, who plays Mrs. Patmore. They said she would be naturally red-faced from being stuck in a hot kitchen for decades. I found all this in my new copy of The World of Downton Abbey, written by Jessica Fellows, niece of Julian. This was backed up by my reading in To Marry an English Lord, which was awesome, you guys would love it, by Gail McCall and Carol McDee Wallace, that states the aristocratic American and British woman of the late Victorian slash early Edwardian era would have maybe worn a little powder, but makeup as we know it was left to the whores and actresses of the world. Thank God that's changed, and thank you for continuing to enable my DANS. Wow, we're going to have to get this Downton Abbey book. And I actually, so. I follow uh, Jessica Fellows on Twitter. And by I, I mean we. <laughs> yes. And she's working on a second volume. Oh, okay. Uh, as, you know, a, a companion guide to the show. So hopefully we'll, we'll get a, a hold of those. There's so many books yeah. about this era to read. So we apologize for not being able to keep up with all of them. We're only beginning to realize how little of the surface we've scratched mm-hmm. on this whole thing. Next up, we have Cousin Melissa from Indiana writing in defense of Mr. Bates. Hello, Kelly and Tom. I love your podcast and look forward to it every week now that I'm caught up with all your episodes. I especially love Tom Repeat's History and Fashion Backwards, which answers some of the questions I have while watching and make history fun, which is always good. I wanted to write because unlike some other cousins, I am a diehard Mr. Bates and a fan for now. I don't know much about the actual strata of social classes, but I have the impression Bates came from a different social class than the average Downton staff member. His mother did, after all, leave him a substantial inheritance. As such, I imagine he is more of a gentleman than a working man, which explains why he seems more like a chum to Lord Grantham rather than a servant, and why he tries so hard to be above the pettiness done to him. In fact, I imagine he might have made something respectable of himself if he hadn't made certain youthful mistakes, such as marrying Vera. While I have to agree with most of the dings you give him, I believe there is a simple answer to Bates' erratic and astoundingly stupid behavior. He suffers from battered spouse syndrome. Maybe Vera beats him in private. Maybe she just browbeats him with words and threats. 
Either way, he is showing some classic symptoms, blaming himself for her behavior, taking credit for her bad acts, making himself suffer and the people who love him so he can continue to stay in a bad relationship, which he feels is his due, not to mention the drinking. With Vera absent, he is able to straighten up a little, but only by being around someone as totally wonderful and nurturing as Anna does he grow a spine and try to break free. Then Vera shows up and he is right back at the cycle of suffering, dragging Anna in with him, if only as a way of making her leave him, so he can say to himself, see, I hurt everyone I love. Anyway, those are just my thoughts. That's how I would write him if I were a contributing writer. But eventually, I would tell him to get over it because there is only so much self-suffering you can take. Oh, and mad props to Maria Doyle Kennedy, the actress who plays Vile Vera. I couldn't place where I had seen her before until I heard in a different podcast and verified in IMDb that she was also Natalie, the taller brunette backup singer from The Commitments. <laughs> Looking forward to the rest of season two and beyond. All right. Well, thank you. I mean, we agree with you that he's definitely got some battered spouse syndrome going on. Yeah. I guess, you know, what's frustrating in the way that it's portrayed, and this may be a case of how I feel about the Dave Matthews band, (laughs) where I hate the fans more (laughs) than I hate the, uh, the band itself. Not that I hate you, Cousin Melissa. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> right. I'm just saying, especially a lot of my guy friends who like the show, they stick up for Mr. Bates by, you know, by saying, oh, like, he's like this great guy and he's like really cool and he's got this whole like, you know, mm-hmm. s- you know, suffering in silence thing, which, you know, as you correctly point out, Melissa, is very unhealthy. Yeah. It's not normal. Mm-hmm. I don't think the way that Bates is behaving. And, and it does bother me because I think Julian Fellows himself was actually on record as, as thinking that Bates is like totally like, you know, master of his domain, uh-huh, so to speak. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, it just bugs me that I, I, I think that is the correct explanation. Well, but that the I creator think, of the show may not be intending that. Right. No, I think, I, well, I think two things. One is that I, I was also uh, struck by that thoughts about his class, which is something that I hadn't really thought about. No, before. and I think it's a really good, um, yeah. a really good thing to point out. Yeah. So I definitely appreciate that. And I also think that it's certainly the case oftentimes in just in, you know, your own personal life that there are people, you know, where you're like, man, I really feel for that person. I understand why their life is so hard, but I cannot stand to be around them. <laughs> and and that's, that's kind of, I think, what's going on with Mr. Bates for okay. me. Okay. Uh, and once again, we also have a lovely letter from our dear Dowager cousin, Jackie. Hooray! <laughs> yes. Unpopular opinion. I rather liked Lavinia's dress in her introductory scene. I'm a fan of that flapper kind of dress. Of course, I also have my secret shameful love of moo's, capes, housecoats, ponchos, jumpers, and potato sacks. All right, I'm going to stop you right there for one second. <laughs> okay. I don't have a problem with the flapper style. All right. I did have a problem with the bandow she was wearing with the weird growths coming <laughs> out of her head. Uh, I just didn't like the pattern or the color on her. I okay. thought they were very unflattering. So, you know, moo-moo it up, Dowager <laughs> Cousin Jackie. No judgment here. All right. She continues. My home ec teacher wasn't boozy like yours, apparently. But I do remember she was fond of using slideshows during class, using material that was obviously produced by, like, Butterball or whatever. Because no sane person would extol the j- virtues of a juicy, probably insanely genetically modified turkey on their own. I sort of half expected by the end of the year for her to put up, you know, the periodic table of the elements as presented by the Oscar Mayer people, complete with new elements like bolognium or what have you. Mr. Bates, I want to take his cane and whack him in his bum leg with it. Anywho, that's all for now, DCJ. Thank you very much for your thoughts, as always. And we do hope you'll send us more of those character-based haikus. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, those were really fun, and we liked them a lot. This is the only way I communicate with my family anymore is over this podcast. So. <laughs> okay, and to our final telegram, 
Dear cousins Kelly and Tom, I just listened to your newest episode, If I Don't Come Back, Blackmail My Mother, and I'd like to say that I was a little upset and you're making fun of McGee embroidering. I am an embroiderer and I am amazing. <laughs> the picture that I have attached is something that I have made and I hope you like it because not only can I make flowers, I have made the busts of the Disney princesses for my daughter. I'm also selling my work, but that's not important. I just wanted to stand up for McGee's embroidery. I don't want to be cousin of the week for this, but it would be very cool, but I am not expecting it. Thanks for doing a podcast about Downton Abbey. I love this. I do have one more thing to add. Bates is awesome. I love him, and I think you need to lay off him for a while. Faithfully, your wonderful embroidering cousin, Phoenix. All right. Okay. Well, I I think first off, we want to clarify that we were not making fun of embroidering as a whole. Some of my best friends are embroiderers. (laughs) Right. See, we're starting with the premise that McGee is damaged in some sort of way. And then speculating about how the embroidery ties into that. Yes, as some sort of occupational therapy. <laughs> right. Uh, or as Tom suggested, doing the same <laughs> one-eared bunny over and over again. <laughs> anyway, we were not trying to knock uh, embroidery in general. And you can't see this because this is an audio podcast. Right. But Cousin Phoenix did send us a photo of her embroidery, which is really stunning. So we'll put that up. Tumblr, Facebook, Etc. Yes. All those places. And uh, we actually are going to name you Cousin of the Week, Cousin Phoenix. I feel like this seems like there's some sort of conspiracy. <laughs> right. But here's the thing. Generally, when we first get the letters, we just kind of skim and, you know, pick out the, the main points. Right. And I was, you know, trying to figure out who to name Cousin of the Week this week. And I was like, well, Cousin Phoenix sent us a photo of embroidery. Yeah. And uh, I had not realized that she mentioned it in her letter. So <laughs> yes. clearly, whether you mention being cousin of the week or not doesn't actually have any effect. We promise. We promise. Yes. Of course, now we're going to get a lot of pictures of embroidery. <laughs> well, that's good news for us. <laughs> uh, so congratulations, Cousin Phoenix. And if you could do the bus of the Crawley Daughters, that would be really cool. <laughs> we would be very impressed. We would... Uh, I don't know what we would do. We don't really have the power to do anything. But yeah, we but would... we would definitely take a picture of thumbs up <laughs> and put that on Twitter. Yeah. I want to make one note before we get into the recap proper. We mm-hmm. apologize for the lack of Linny or LOL. <laughs> we thought we had set a series recording on our DVR for series two of Downton so that we would have Linny's ramblings at hand for this series. But unfortunately, we did not do this, and PBS is no longer rerunning them, and they are not on the PBS website. So we're working strictly off of our DVDs. Right. So if you happen to know what Laura Linney was saying (laughs) from inside the human heart, let us know. Or if you happen to know, you know, if it's online somewhere, please send that to us. Because we really like making fun of her. Yeah, it's it's just a loss in our lives, Mm -hmm. the loss of Laura Linney. Well, speaking of losses, we should jump into this recap, during which there are many losses. There are indeed. First, we should announce our character ceasefire for the week. Oh, that's right. This week, we have decided not to uh, give Mrs. Patmore a hard time. Yes. So if you have tuned in hoping to hear our patented Mrs. Patmore impression, (laughs) you should listen to a different week's podcast. Yes, it's in virtually all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Last week started us off with the horrors of war. 
this week is starting us off uh, with the horrors of being British, as usual, with their uh, standard credit sequence. Fantastic. Yes. <laughs> we see a bike messenger riding toward Downton. Uh, if this is the same bike messenger from that first episode, he has aged horribly. <laughs> I mean, a, you know, war will do that to a man. True. Well, and bike messaging seems fairly taxing in mm. its own right. True. We see a nervous guy adjusting a coat, and downstairs, William has received a letter. Mr. Carson is building a fire, and Mrs. Hughes yells at him because he is making work for himself. She has no sympathy for that, and Carson is all, you know, being Carson. Yes. So I'm sure that's the last we'll hear of that. Then back upstairs, the uh, nervous guy is dressing Lord Grantham. So he is clearly the new valet. Uh, Still wearing his military dress, so the war has not ended. Right. Lang nervously tries to correct something about his uniform, and Lord Grantham yells at him to just fix it already. And he uh, really shouldn't be so critical of Lang, because Lang has been in the trenches. Yes. Uh, he, well, he gets a modicum of self-awareness about it, and he, <laughs> yeah. Lord Grantham chastises himself and says, oh, sorry. Because yeah. we all know that Lord Grantham has a giant case of trench envy. <laughs> uh Back in the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore is clutching her ample breast, reading a letter. William comes in, and it turns out the letter he received are his papers for his military medical exam. He's very enthusiastic to jump into the line of fire. Very much so. And he asks Daisy to get a photo taken so that he can take it with him to war, much as Matthew did with Lavinia's. Although I can imagine that William's going to guard Daisy's photo a little more closely. I would guess. And then they're flirting and kind of being cute, and William wants a kiss, and Mrs. Patmore tells them that they cannot be kissing in the kitchen, because we're not sure why. Uh, well, it makes the milk go bad. <laughs> <laughs> Upstairs, O'Brien is dressing McGee. She is playing like a fiddle, as usual, by manipulating her into getting Thomas back to the hospital, as he has expressed his desire to do in the last episode. O'Brien, of course, being the competent one, is finding a way to actually get that done by manipulating McGee. Back at the trenches, Matthew tells Davis, which is apparently the name of his Batman. Oh, yeah. He tells them that there's a possibility that they could be doing a recruitment tour in Manchester and Yorkshire with a general where they could potentially not die for several months. So they're both very excited. And just as importantly, advance their various relationship plots, which will be exciting for us. Lord Grantham, McGee, and Carson, and William are all discussing the fact that William's getting sent off to war and what this means for the most important people, the residents of Downton Abbey. Lord Grantham is whining about how he's no good and he's useless and he's just decorative and all this sort of thing. He says he can't sleep at night. Has he tried drinking? Yeah, that usually solves that problem. Yeah, should really maybe drink more heavily. Well, and it's like... How much sleep does he think these guys in the trenches are actually <laughs> getting? I find this whole Lord Grantham wishes he was at war to be... I can't really say insulting, because it's not like I have any military experience. But he's getting all nostalgic about this wartime experience. Mm-hmm. That's what it seems like to me. And not only that, you know, his nostalgia is for a very different kind of war. Well, like, you know, the Boer War, the Second Boer War. Right. 
was fought in a much more traditional fashion. You know, mm-hmm. you're not living in a hole in the ground. You're not getting, you know, bombed with mustard gas. Like, right. But I mean, it's always impossible for people to recognize that. Like, that's just sort of a fact throughout history that anybody that was in a war assumes that the next one will be the same. Yeah. They make the same mistake in World War II where they assume the French just assumed that they could just stop the Germans again, like they did in World War One. Mm-hmm. And again, the technology did. Spoilers. <laughs> they didn't. They did not. No. Lang is doing some cleaning in the servants' hall with some sort of solvent. I know Brian comes in and tells him he shouldn't be doing that in the servants' hall because it's before luncheon and Carson doesn't like for the air to smell like chemicals before the servants' luncheon. It's understandable. So uh, Lang getting off to a roaring start with Miss O'Brien. <laughs> Mosley comes into the servants' hall and he awkwardly like jokes around because Lang's job is better than his. And O'Brien's like, did you even apply? For this job and Mosley's like I didn't even have a chance and we're like shut up Mosley yeah nobody wants you and your weak lungs <laughs> at Downton Abbey he doesn't know that though so he gives Ethel a copy of a book to give to Anna called what was it called Elizabeth and her German garden that sounds traitorous given the time <laughs> period it does but I, I looked it up and it looks to have been I don't know sort of like the uh, the Bridget Jones's diary of the era <laughs> like kind of just this so Mosley's into chiclet it seems to be yeah i'm not that surprised he does seem like the kind of guy who sort of like overcompensates to be attractive to ladies by Mm -hmm. being like i care about things that you like (laughs) (laughs) no seriously why aren't we going out that kind of guy is very annoying as mosley is and o'brien correctly identifies the situation because ethel's like why would he bring her a book because (laughs) ethel is a moron yeah but O'Brien correctly infers that Mosley just wants all of Bates's spoils from the valet job at Downton Abbey <laughs> to uh, sole custody of Anna's nethers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe Ethel was just confused why Mosley thinks he has a chance. I mean... Potentially. Look at him. I mean, yeah. And he's named Mosley. <laughs> Come on. Anna <laughs> is not going to become Anna Mosley. <laughs> She uh, She's a strictly one-syllable last name lady. <laughs> yes. She knows what she wants, and she's not afraid to go after it. <laughs> Dr. Clarkson is talking with McGee. She's attempting to put the plan into action to get Thomas to the hospital, but Dr. Clarkson says no, that it is not his jurisdiction. He doesn't have the authority to hook people from the front or wherever else and, and bring them to Downton. Which, good for you standing up, Dr. Clarkson. Not good for you, McGee, looking exactly like Napoleon in this scene. <laughs> it's true. She's one hand tucked in the jacket away <laughs> from getting her portrait done. Like, it's just ridiculous. Maybe maybe that was intentional. Maybe she thought Dr. Clarkson would be more respectful of her authority if she dressed up like Napoleon. <laughs> that only works in France. <laughs> She's she's not that smart. <laughs> uh, we get a scene downstairs where Carson can't open a bottle of wine. Anna asks if he's okay. He says, oh, leave me alone. So Carson's still feeling a bit off his game. Yeah. But hilariously so. <laughs> yes. Upstairs at dinner, the Dowager Countess also gets, on, gets in on the asking Carson if he's all right action. And he says, I'm fine. <laughs> then he, like, corrects himself. He's like, oh, uh, yes, everything's all right, my lady. Like, yeah. it's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's the man behind the mask. <laughs> Edith announces that Matthew's coming home on his tour of England with uh, some general, whoever. Yeah, they don't even know his name. Yeah. Probably Julian Fellows ran out of generals to reference. <laughs> he blew his wad in that first episode. <laughs> all out of generals. <laughs> 
Uh, oh, also, by the way, I did notice in this scene at dinner, Lord Grantham does turn down the wine that Carson attempts to pour for him. I did see so, that, so... There's, there's your problem, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Robert announces that he wants a dinner given when Matthew is in Yorkshire again on this tour. Because he loves Matthew. He does. He loves Matthew more than everyone, <laughs> even Carson. Right. And Mary announces that she would like to ask Richard Carlyle there for the weekend, that same weekend, because there's nothing quite like having your prospective beau at the house when your former beau is also there. Although, to be fair, I guess Matthew did do that to her yeah, that's in the true. previous episode. Turnabout. The Dowager Countess says that they need to ask Aunt Rosamond as well that same weekend to take the edge off so Mary doesn't come across as desperate, so that Sir Richard Carlyle doesn't think Mary's after him. Edith, for once, wisely points out that that's exactly what's happening, but the Dowager Countess says that it's the appearance of these things that matters. McGee is very skeptical that they can pull off a large house party without any footmen. Right. Lord Grantham does not care for such trivial details. <laughs> because despite the fact that he won't stop talking about the war, he has failed to understand that things are different now. Edith announces that the Drakes, the family whose husband had dropsy last series... Their final able-bodied farmhand has been called up, and he was the one who drove their tractor for them, and they have no one now to drive their tractor. Edith, having recently learned how to drive, has offered her services. The Dowager Countess is very much opposed to this, telling Edith that she's a lady, not toad of toad hole. Man, the Dowager Countess is very well-read. Well, she doesn't really have a whole lot to do. You know, her childbearing years are over. Yeah, that's true. She doesn't really have to plan anything. Yeah, she's only got a cottage. Mm -hmm. But Edith says she doesn't care. She's going to drive the tractor anyway, and even Mary is excited, leading me to believe that Mary is drunk. <laughs> it's quite possible. It's that Richard Carlyle for you. Driving her to drink. So Edith uh, apparently stole Matthew's bicycle as she rides it up to the Drake's farm. All the sheep run away because they're scared of her. It's just my theory. <laughs> um, and uh, offers her services to the Drake's, much to their confusion. I mean, and understandably so. Why it's is... not every day that the daughter of an earl shows up and offers to, like, grub out your barn. <laughs> right. But she does, and they accept. Mrs. Drake goes off to get her some more appropriate attire. She is wearing pants in this scene, because she was riding the bicycle. So mm -hmm. I just want to point out, she was wearing trousers. Not scandalous harem pants, <laughs> but trousers nonetheless. Yes. Time marches on. Downstairs, Mrs. Patmore is talking to Anna. It turns out Mrs. Patmore's uh, nephew, who was in the army, is missing and presumed dead. And apparently there's no information further. And Anna helpfully suggests that Mrs. Patmore ask Lord Grantham for more information because he is, despite his uselessness, very well connected amongst the upper ranks of the military. Right. And, you know, it's something that Mrs. Patmore would never have considered asking him on her own. Mm -hmm. But he's a, a nice enough guy that there's no reason. I mean, he got her cataract surgery. Yeah. This is really much less demanding. In indeed it is. Downstairs, Ethel is just like weirdly hitting on Mr. Lang. Yeah, she says something like, because he's sewing mm -hmm. for uh, Lord Grantham. He's mending some of his clothes. Right. And Ethel's like, ooh, can't believe those big hands can do such fine work. Yeah. Something very, like, it's very Downton Abbey, very explicit. It's very salacious. Yeah. To the point that it made me kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. And I mean, look, I watched Oz. <laughs> 
Miss O'Brien comes in and tells Ethel that Mr. Lang's big hands could totally slap her. And we got up off of our couch and cheered. <laughs> yes. I also imagined Ethel being like, how did you know I like it rough? <laughs> and uh, then we have a very sweet scene of O'Brien complimenting Lang's valeting abilities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's saying, oh, you know, men think just because they can tie a shoelace, they could be a valet. Right. And we learn that Lang's mother was a lady's maid like Miss O'Brien. And if we know anything about Miss O'Brien and getting on her good side, it's that, you know, talking about the rarefied strata of the lady's maid is the shortest way to her cold, shriveled black heart. Lady's maid, the highest pinnacle of human achievement. (laughs) Uh, But they have a nice little moment of them talking shop and she, you know... Stops yeah. being mean to him for a little while. Yeah, and neither one of them in this in this uh, fifteen second scene appears to be scheming in any way. Yeah, that's which weird. is uh, rare, unusual for O'Brien. Yeah, nary a scheme or, in sight. Quite frankly, anyone on this show. Yeah, she maybe is still. Maybe this is part of her scheme to get him to slap Ethel. <laughs> Because she has to lay off because she uh, was tormenting her previously. Yes. So Carson would know if she got slapped by O'Brien that it was O'Brien. The case of the slapped maid. (laughs) Carson comes in and tells Lang that he needs him to, quote, play the footman at the upcoming dinner because, seriously... There's no footman. There's no footman, and Carson will not... Imagine the possibility of allowing maids in the dining room. But Mr. Lang is shocked, you can see, to his very core by the <laughs> suggestion that he, a valet, a male lady's maid, <laughs> yeah. be made to serve dinner in the dining room. Yes. I read that more as him being, like, scared, which is partly because he's just seemed scared by everything from I, the first I mean, shot. I don't of know. I, I could buy either interpretation, but I, I do also like the idea of him yeah. having a little hoity-toitiness about him. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. In the library, Lord Grantham is talking with Mrs. Patmore and taking down the particulars of her nephew, whose name is, as it turns out, Archie Philpotts. That is a made-up name. (laughs) Right. With that coming after uh, Taxi Cavendish last week, it's like... (laughs) It's like at this point, Julian Fellows is just opening up his big book of British names and picking something out at random. (laughs) Taxi Cavendish. Archie Philpotts, Reginald Duckbottom. (laughs) If there's not a Reginald Duckbottom in an upcoming episode, I am going to cry. Anna comes into the hall downstairs only to be confronted with yet more awkwardness from Mr. Molesley, who asks if she's read the book he gave her but yesterday. Yeah. He's laying it on very heavy. Yeah. He's like, oh, well, you should read it and then we can talk about it sometimes. And, you know, and our feelings is implied. Right. Anna, very much not interested in talking about this book, her feelings, or anything with Mr. Molesley, totally cock blocks him by suggesting that they form a, uh, a book club. Yeah, we can bring some of the others in on mm-hmm. this, she says. Which, you know, give a lady the equivalent of Bridget Jones to read. <laughs> She's going to suggest a book club so fast <laughs> that your head spins, okay? <laughs> Neither Mark Darcy nor Daniel What's-His-Name would do that. I don't remember what Hugh Grant's character's last name was, and I'm not going to look it up because we're already recording this. In your face, Bridget Jones. Helen Fielding, more like. Well, yeah. Anyway, Anna very nicely gets herself out of this situation. Uh, Lord Grantham informs McGee that he has ordered Dr. Clarkson to get Thomas to work at the hospital, saying that he does 
after all, fund the hospital and is owed some perks. Mm-hmm. McGee is delighted. She didn't even do anything. I... Like, Miss O'Brien did it all. Although, I have some questions about the possibility of that being possible. Because he's the Lord Lieutenant. So, right. I mean, presumably he does outrank Major Clarkson. But does he outrank the people who would not allow Major Clarkson to do such a thing? Well, I think he knows the people that would not allow Dr. Clarkson to do such a thing. I think in any big organization like this, there's if you find the right people to talk to, you can always get an exception made. Like O'Brien. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, as long as you know the lady's maid of the wife of the guy who is the big lord in the town where you want to get transferred to, eh, things can work out. Fair enough. Back on the farm, <laughs> Edith is pulling a stump out of the ground and swearing at the stump. It's This is the most interesting thing Edith has ever done. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, Farmer Drake is back behind her watching her pull the stump out with the tractor and smiling an idiotic smile. It's true. It's not that he has that much of a choice. It's true. He's unfortunate. Yeah, his, his face and his dental work are uh, not the best. That's true. We have a scene of the two of them drinking moonshine after a job well done. And she asks if he planted that particular tree, which stump they pulled out. Mm -hmm. And he says, no, it was planted, I think, by his His father. father. Yeah. And uh, they're discussing how one can't let fruit trees overstay their welcome, which I could not agree with more. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Drake brings a picnic basket out to the barn, which is where they're drinking their moonshine. It may not be moonshine. It may be water. It's just that I'm from Appalachia, (laughs) and it looks just like a moonshine jug. I I assume that's the only thing they drink on farms. Yes. And the dog tries to eat it because apparently there wasn't enough dog in this episode (laughs) of Downton Abbey. She's like, it's not for you, dog. It's for that dog. (laughs) Pointing at either her husband or Edith. We're not sure which. Yeah. No, I mean, it's not surprising they get along so well, though. They'll be like, oh... You're also slightly odd-looking. It's so hard, you know, because it's not like we're straight-up ugly, but just people don't like us. <laughs> I mean, really, Mrs. Drake could get in on that, too. I don't know why she's not, uh... She's more attractive, though. I can't tell if she's actually more attractive than Edith, but her face is definitely more symmetrical than old Farmer Drake's. Yeah, that's true. Like, he's definitely done well for himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well done, Farmer Drake. Thomas comes walking up. He has finally made it to Downton, therefore he is doing what he loves best, smoking out in the yard. It's not clear what the passage of time is here to me. Right. Like, I don't remember where, if any, time stamps come up on this one. Mm -hmm. But it's like, so the day that Lord Grantham tells McGee that Thomas can come back, Thomas is back? Or has it been a couple weeks? Well, it's all kind of along the How long has Ethel been on the farm? (laughs) That is a good question. Well, because they said, how long did they say, because they talked about planning the party and the party's now coming up soon. Yeah, they said it was going to be at least a few weeks. Yeah, so that must be, it must, we must be a few weeks later at this point. Uh, But in any case, whenever it is, Thomas is smoking. And O'Brien comes out and sees him, and she is very happy to see him. She has a genuine moment of happiness to see him, and he just sort of stands there being standoffish and superior, because that's all he's capable of doing. Yeah, and they have a fun conversation talking smack about Ethel, (laughs) because apparently she thought O'Brien had a fancy man. 
<laughs> because <laughs> Ethel is apparently the unofficial greeter of all unexpected guests at Downton. <laughs> right. She awkwardly hits on all of them. Yeah. Just, they cut that scene out of her and Mrs. Bates. <laughs> <laughs> That's a shame. I would have liked that scene. So she has to see his blighty. Which is his injured hand. Right. Blighty refers to England is what the... And I don't know in what other context this may have been, but at least on the front, when you referred to back home, you said Blighty. And therefore, a minor wound like the one Thomas had that would get you sent back to Blighty was just called a Blighty. Would you say it was shorthand? (laughs) No. Uh, below stairs, Thomas is down visiting with all of the people who hate him <laughs> for reasons that I don't understand personally. Well, if he stopped visiting with people who hated him, he would never be able to visit <laughs> with anyone. Mrs. Hughes comes in and he's, he's smarting off at the mouth and she tells him to stop. But he announces to her that he's no longer a footman and does not have to take orders from her. Right, which, so to me, I'm like, but then, so she can just kick you out of her yeah, house then, right? Yeah, which I don't right? understand why she doesn't, but yeah. uh, she's clearly displeased. Well, I mean, clearly, Julian Fellows wasn't done writing this scene. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and then Thomas weirdly flirts with Ethel, whether because he's making fun of her obliviousness to the fact that he's gay, which everybody else appears to know. Yeah. Like, apart from Daisy, everybody's like, oh, you know, Thomas, he's a real... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can hear that, but I was whistling and waggling my hand. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but like I'm like are you recognizing that she is the ginger lady version of you (laughs) I I don't understand is this like respect among thieves or I think Ethel starts flirting with Thomas because she flirts with every everybody that passes in her line of vision Mm -hmm. and Thomas responds because he's narcissistic thank you Dr. Phil (laughs) Carson comes in and Mrs. Hughes is like Carson we have a visitor and Carson looking at her not at Thomas says I've seen him and walks out. Boom! Yeah. Gangsta. <laughs> Straight up gangsta Carson. That's awesome. It, quite awesome. Mm-hmm. I wish I could be that cool <laughs> about seeing people that I hate. Yeah. But I'm not that cool. Usually I start crying. <laughs> um, and uh, O'Brien informs Thomas that Mr. Bates has been replaced by Mr. Lang, to which Thomas replies, so then not all the changes at Downton have been bad. Uh, cut to Anna looking very sad. Yes. <laughs> You can put that in almost any downstairs scene. <laughs> McGee and Mary greet Sir Richard Carlyle. He's Hooray! here. At last, the long-vaunted Mr. Carlyle. Yes, who many of our listeners may recognize as Sir Jorah Mormont from Game of Thrones. Also on HBO. Listen to Boar's Gore and Swords. That's right. Yeah, uh, Lord Grantham bothers to show up to <laughs> greet him. Like, I'm like, what happened? Remember before the war, everybody <laughs> would line up outside. Because, like, I understand that you don't have any footmen, but, like, come on. Like, throw a maid or two out there. Like, yeah. like Ethel's there, like, carrying stuff inside. Yeah, you've got mystery servants down there. Yeah, Haul them up. Come on. You know, you're still a big British house. Come on. Put a new coat of paint on them and shove them out the door. <laughs> Aunt Rosamond gets out of the car as well. Mary greets her and asks what she thinks of Sir Richard Carlyle. And Rosamond tells Mary that he spent the whole trip reading his own newspapers, but she'll be sure to tell Mary, you know, when she (laughs) figures out what she thinks of him. Um, McGee asks Branson to go to the hospital and force Lady Sybil to come to dinner. This has the impression of being a uh, fairly regular occurrence of McGee trying to see Sybil and Sybil insisting on working at the hospital. How selfish. I, it's, it is, rather. 
at the hospital. Sybil is being all freshman year about coming home for dinner. She's all like, don't they know how important this is to me? Wearing her awesome Red Cross nurse uniform, by the way, which is very cool. It is. Cousin Isabel is there and tells her that she should be glad to have something that's not horrifying to do, <laughs> yeah. uh, as Cousin Isabel is. And she has Thomas take over for Sybil, and he's just kind of being annoying in general. Sybil snottily tells him to give Lieutenant Courtney his pills before she leaves. Anna tells Mrs. Hughes that Lang is nervous about foot Serving, yeah, serving at dinner. Yeah. But that she is fine, and she can't complain considering what's happening in in France. Yeah, Mrs. Hughes makes some reference to how difficult it must be for Anna to go on every day with a broken heart, such Mm -hmm. as she is. But Anna is being... Well, a little Batesian mm-hmm. about the whole thing. She's uh, she's staked a claim in Batesylvania, and she's not <laughs> going to give it up anytime soon. That is true. I mean, you know, it is also just sort of England to be yeah. this way. Well, she says, you know, not to feel sorry for her to Mrs. Hughes, but uh, as she leaves, you can clearly see Mrs. Hughes feeling sorry for her. Yeah. Because Ms. Mrs. Hughes is very nice and awesome. Yes. It turns out the fashion for cocktails before dinner hasn't reached Yorkshire as Sir Richard points out to Mary. Yep, so. Uh, so we had discussed that on our previous Fashion Backward when we were talking about uh, dinner parties. That's right. So it has happened, and as we uh, speculated at the time, it takes a very long time <laughs> to have anything cool reach Yorkshire. <laughs> Matthew, Isabel, and Lavinia arrive for dinner, and Mary introduces them to Sir Richard Carlyle. Turns out Sir Richard knows Lavinia through her uncle, although he says that they were uh, old friends and Lavinia insists that they were mere acquaintances. And I said, boom, <laughs> you just got swired. <laughs> Sybil is over. Sybil has clearly been extricated from her work at the hospital and she asks Aunt Rosamond what Mary sees in Richard Carlyle. Uh, and she can't believe it's only his money. And everyone certainly seems to have an, an opinion about Richard Carlyle. Yeah, like, all he's done is show up and, like, not drink cocktails. I don't yeah, know he's already, like, bending to your whims out <laughs> in the country. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough because I'm not clear on if during wartime there is a London season mm. or not, or if that's been suspended. Right. Because if there was a London season, they would have potentially been in London and kind of, like, heard about things well i mean they all knew who he was he was the man with all those horrid newspapers but he apparently only rose to prominence like during the war right it's it's not clear to me why they all hate him quite so much it's, yeah it's just like you're supposed to hate him yeah well i don't know if i mean if it's just sort of a nouveau riche sort of hatred yeah but i think there's a lot of different because well, some of them are don't like him because of his horrid newspapers right the horridness of which I'm not entirely sure mm-hmm. what that is. And then there is that Novu Rish, like, oh, he's not one of us. Right. He's not. But, you know, it was all fine when it was Matthew. So <laughs> anyway, uh, Rosamond tells Sybil that, you know, Mary has different considerations to make than Sybil does. Mm-hmm. Lord Grantham uh, is talking to Matthew and wants to know if he's safely out of the war. And I don't know what Matthew says. Probably no. Lord Grantham says that he hopes that he is now safely out of the war for good. And Matthew says that he cannot hope that, you know, now that he's been, he can't feel happy about being safe if the men that he served with and led Uh are still behind. Yeah. Um, Which is something that Lord Grantham actually can probably relate to in a non-condescending fashion. Right. Hard Um, hard as it is for an Englishman to do that. (laughs) Yeah. But Matthew then asks Lord Grantham how his commission with the North Riding Volunteers is going, and Lord Grantham is 
sends him into his self-indulgent funk again. Yeah, and he just kind of like storms off and is like, oh, it's just honorary. I'll be in my room. I wish I never was born into this stupid North Riding Volunteers. <laughs> the Dowager Countess awesomely plays the ignorant fool with Carlisle uh, in regards to the newspaper industry. She's all like, oh, I never heard of a newspaper before. Or uh, she's saying it must be a very exciting time to be in the newspaper business because of the war. Right. And he basically says uh, he doesn't give two shits about the war. His primary concern is making money for his investors. Yes. Which... I do take a slight issue with Lady Rosamond dinging him for reading his own newspapers on the way because part of his job as the owner mm-hmm. or, you know, does he own the newspapers? I believe. Well, I mean, I think that he owns them, you know, if they're investors, then he's, he's the operating owner. Right, right. You know, he's not writing every article. That, like, that's not how the newspaper <laughs> works. Right. Everyone at Downton Abbey, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's part of his job every day mm-hmm. to read the newspapers and make sure that, you know, he's putting out a quality product. Right. And what better time to do that than when you're stuck in a car or a train for hours and hours on end. <laughs> With a, you know, not particularly sociable or friendly woman in yeah. her own right. Who you presumably don't know particularly well apparently at all this is apparently their first meeting right so anyway Mm. i just want to say i'm team carlisle in the sense of doing your job yeah mary comes over to intervene and she worries that granny's strong opinions will be uh off-putting to richard carlisle but granny reveals that she thinks that they're evenly matched as strong opinions go having just been shocked (laughs) <laughs> by his inflammatory remarks regarding the war and capitalism. Also in that scene, Edith is sitting there but is not taking part in the conversation. I only note it because she's wearing the exact same color of red as the Dowager Countess. How embarrassing. I know. They really should have sent Edith back up to change. <laughs> I agree. Downstairs, chaos. Mm-hmm. Carson's forgotten there's the sauce. There's no footman. Well, there's no footman. The sauce is missing. Off with the Melba toast. Lang is nervous. He asks what order he should be serving people in, and Anna's sort of giving him a quick refresher course on it. Well, because I think she says it's the Dowager Countess first. Right, or and then, Old Lady Grantham. That's true, As yes. they all refer to Man, her. they call her Old Lady Grantham all the time this season. Yeah. It's awesome. And then I believe it's to the then, left. Well, she, she says first Old Lady Grantham, then His Lordship, then on around. Okay. Yeah. And Daisy wants to know why it's not ladies first. And it turns out that's how they do it on the continent. And according to Anna, we don't like foreign ways here. <laughs> here, here. USA! <laughs> USA! Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> the Dowager Countess asks about Thomas's return. Uh, she had uh, seen him? I or? believe she saw him in the village. Yeah. I mean, it's not a big village. <laughs> it's not exactly a metropolis. She uh, she saw him on her way to go purchase more uh, science fiction type novels. <laughs> yeah. And Lord Grantham asks Rosamond if Mary would be happy with Carlisle. She we, says that he would give her a position, essentially, right. and that Mary can't be choosy at this point. Right, right. Because, again, you know, we're several years out from where we were at the end of Series 1. And uh, it does not sh- appear that anybody better has yeah. been on the horizon. So. so, yeah. I am a little baffled about why they're all so reticent. Like, he's not even Italian. <laughs> Like, have you forgotten the plan? Well, it's just like, since when did getting married for love become so important to these people? I know. Not a one of them got married for love as far as the... Mm -hmm. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Lang is awkwardly serving his way around the table, culminating by dropping the sauce all over Edith. 
Good job, Lang. <laughs> right. Correct person to drop the sauce on if you're going to do it. But Carson collapses. He, you know, has the appearance of a heart attack or something along those lines, but he just, uh, he, well, he's been killed by a poor standard of service, mm-hmm. which he always <laughs> knew was how it was going to go. <laughs> and it's finally happened. So, of course, you know, everybody's jumping up and, and running to help. Isabel asks Edith to run and fetch Major Clarkson, and Edith says, What about my dress? <laughs> Meanwhile, the only two who are not trying to help are Richard Carlyle, who's just sort of awesomely standing off by a wall. Yeah. Like he's like he got up at the same time as everybody else was like, I don't know these people. Yeah. I don't know what? Can I put this in my newspaper? And the Dowager <laughs> Countess didn't move. Yeah. She's just still seated at the table, like what? A I, butler having a heart attack <laughs> is no reason to offend the order of precedence. <laughs> She's like, yes. So I assume Lang's the new butler now. He can take care of this. <laughs> Sybil uh, tells Carson that she'll help, and Mary like tries to get in there. And Sybil's like, uh, I'm the one who went to nursing school, biatch. <laughs> yes. And actually, the new butler is Mrs. Hughes in, in this circumstance. Mm-hmm. Uh, will be will become acting butler. She gathers the people together, and, and Carson's nightmare is now going to come true. Maids are going to serve at dinner. Oh, no! It's, it's uh it's pretty terrible and lang just sort of stands there being miserable and useless everyone's blaming i mean nobody's saying it but it's very clear yeah that they all think it's his fault yeah that he just killed carson yeah and more importantly ruined dinner <laughs> yeah because they're not it's not like they're taking a break from dinner because mrs hughes is like get the warmed plates get the roast beef in here go 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 <laughs> yeah yeah i mean <laughs> she's like this dinner has to go off without a hitch <laughs> right i mean apart from the other hitch but we're not gonna talk about it <laughs> yeah no more hitches and uh you know lang all you had to do was say, listen, if you make me footman, I will kill you. And then he would have reconsidered. Uh, that will take us to one of our favorite recurring segments, where our very own laundry lady, Kelly, will give us a little lesson in fashion in a segment we call Fashion Backward. All right. Well, I took it to heart when Edith said, what about my dress? Because I have owned a number of delicate garments in the past that have been ruined by things. And also the fact that rather than taking them to the dry cleaner, I balled them up and left them in the closet. (laughs) Anyway, so I I went online and tried to find out what laundering was like during this time period. And standard laundering was, you know, they they had invented the washing machine at this point. You know, your kind of roller-based washing machine. Mm -hmm. Um, Electricity, you know, had been invented also. So... Laundry was starting not to be quite the horrible, back-breaking slog. It had once been uh, one of the sources that I saw. Basically had this whole thing about how more young women have been broken by laundry than any other, like, house chore. Wow. Like, physically broken down. Wow. Because, I mean, you know, you're dealing with an enormous weight that you personally had to, like, lift and knead and get the stains out of. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know... On something not delicate, they would use all variety of things to get stains out, including uh, human urine, pig feces, standard lemon and vinegar. <laughs> uh, I, look, I, it was because it had a lot of ammonia. They would use right. it as a bleach. Okay. I am just telling you what the internet told me. Yeah. 
Anyway, but I couldn't find any information on how someone would launder something as delicate as the dress that Edith is wearing. Right. So we actually emailed Evangeline Holland, the delightful proprietress of Edwardian Promenade, our favorite resource for the Fashion Backwards segment. That it is. To ask her how this would be handled. And she writes back, Hi, Kelly. I'm flattered. I admit to falling behind on my Downton podcast because of the furious writing of my own World War One set novel. Uh, put me down for a copy, please. That's right. But they are bookmarked for future listening. But onward to the question. A laundress of the period would wash delicate frocks, blouses, lingerie, and skirts by hand. Since Edith's dress was likely of silk, it would be handled very delicately. No heat, hot water, or hot iron. Soft white soap dissolved in the water before submerging the silk. And it was then rolled in a heavy towel to soak the moisture before use of a warm iron. Gum Arabic was used to revive the look of silk. And many laundresses and laundry houses prized their special mixtures of what we would now consider detergent. Of course, after the war, servants were difficult to come by, which no doubt played a part in the skimpier undergarments worn by ladies, but the ladies' crawly no doubt continued to wear luxurious frocks and lingerie. She also recommends the book Clothing Choice Care Cost by Mary Shank Woolman. was written with an American audience in mind, but was also published in the UK and deals with post-war fashion concerns. Another great book for general Edwardian laundry history is Laundry Bygones by Pamela Sambrook. This has plenty of pictures of irons, washing machines. Yes, they existed back then. Soaps and other laundry items. And the last page lists manor houses that still have their Edwardian laundries available to visit. I hope this fulfills your needs, but don't hesitate to ask if you'd like me to do some more digging. Regards, Evangeline. Which was great. I mean, she responded to us like within an hour, which was amazing. Because, I mean, I'd spent a decent amount of time looking for precisely this information online. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's it's just a delight that there's anyone in the world, let alone somebody that we corresponded with, that could immediately reply, mm-hmm. oh, here are some good books about Edwardian laundry. Yeah, and like, she, she does also include uh, links to those on Amazon and Google Books, so we'll be sure and tweet those for you if you're interested in checking them out independently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess if you're a cousin who's actually visited an Edwardian manor, we'd love to see pictures or hear about that, because obviously being in America, we're very limited in terms of the number of manor houses we can visit in a given year. It is true. So, yeah, so I found that to be very interesting because, you know, I, I figured, you know, standard laundering wasn't, you know, terribly difficult, not by modern standards, of course. But, mm-hmm. you know, they do wear a lot of things that you can't launder normally on Downton Abbey. Yeah, yeah. I also want to do just a little quick check in on how fashion has changed with the onset of World War One. The most lasting change were the rising hemlines and the war crinoline skirt. The war crinoline is a style that became popular around 1916. It was an effort that newspapers, potentially even newspapers uh, owned by Sir Richard Carlyle, hmm. uh, although he is a composite character, not an actual historical figure. Yes. They called it patriotic and practical. It came only to about mid-calf, whereas during most of the Edwardian period, skirts were coming down, uh, I think, pretty much to ankle length or possibly boot-top length. Yeah. Also, they were uh, puffed out with crinoline, which is a, you know, a very voluminous fabric. And they were actually not particularly patriotic in that they actually used more fabric than <laughs> was strictly allowed by the shortages of the day, with most of the material going to the war effort. But everybody said, the war is long, but the skirts are short. And they were seen as, as necessary to keep the spirits of the soldiers you know, who were in Britain high. They did alter the length of hemlines forever. 
Evangeline Holland, in fact, uh, credits this as the the thing that forever separated fashion from the customs of the 19th century. Hmm. So this is where you start seeing a really modern silhouette, Mm. both for men and women, but we are focusing on women here. Unfortunately, fashion did become more austere in 1917 as the war dragged on. Dye shortages caused drab and darker colors to become the norm, and women were wearing much more monochromatic ensembles. Hmm. Which is sort of evident in this episode. Cousin Isabel in particular at the dinner is wearing this sort of like drab olive green number. Mm. Um, presumably that is a dye that would have been available more because they were using that drab dye for mm-hmm. uniforms. But there are a number of sort of monochromatic dresses like Mary wears that red dress. Right. Things aren't quite as elaborate. So I don't know how much of that would have actually affected them at Downton Abbey. But I think we're seeing a little bit of evidence there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Costume jewelry of glass or crystal beads replaced, you know, gold, silver, diamond jewelry. And that was actually popularized by Coco Chanel herself before she became a Nazi sympathizer. (laughs) Trousers and short hairstyles become much more common during the war, particularly among female war workers who needed to be more safety conscious. Having long hair, you know, you could get stuck in machinery. All kinds of horrible things could happen to you. Right, right. And uh, obviously trousers, much better for riding a bicycle or working on a farm, perhaps. Yeah. It became standard for female office workers to wear feminized suits. This had started earlier in the period, but at this point, everybody was doing it. So wherever good old Gwen is, she is definitely wearing a suit. And we hope she's doing well. We hope you are doing very well, Gwen. Uh, Soft V-neck blouses were considered too revealing prior to 1914, but they became standard after the war started. Again, having a high-necked blouse is using extra fabric that doesn't necessarily need to be used. Mm -hmm. And it really uh, becomes a much more revealing period overall. Women are wearing sexy heeled boots and flesh-colored stockings. Uh, So, you know, they're not quite showing their actual leg, but men are seeing far more of the female leg than they have in many centuries. And it's it's hard to see that actually happening on Downton Abbey because most of the shots are three-quarter shots. And you don't get a whole lot of shots of their feet. Right. So I didn't get a good sense from this episode if anybody is wearing the war colonel. And we're, we're up into 1917 at this point. Yeah. So it's doubtful that they would be since that was so wasteful. And honestly, that may have been a London thing. And it may not have even ever made it out to Yorkshire. Right. Uh, so that is our fashion backwards for okay. today. Thanks to Wikipedia, Evangeline Holland of Edwardian Promenade, and everyone at the Costumers Manifesto, the costume history wiki that anyone can edit for their assistance. Yeah. Thank you, Kelly. You're welcome. Up in the Grantham's bedroom, Lord Grantham... Strictly, it's Lady Grantham's bedroom. (laughs) Yes. Lord Grantham is preparing to scandalously sleep with his wife, and I mean sleep next to, not... It's PBS. (laughs) Right. Uh, But he tells McGee that apparently it was not a heart attack uh, that Carson had suffered, so it's not clear what it was, just some sort of... Panic stress attack? Yeah. They probably did not have a term for it back then. That's probably true. They probably were just like, well, he's not dead. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Lord Grantham is surprised by how nervous Lang has sort of become. I mean, and I think it's not just, well, obviously, it's not just at the dinner, but, you know, in his mm-hmm. daily interactions with yeah, Lang. He says he Lang. seemed, uh, Lord Grantham comments on when he interviewed Lang that Lang seemed very solid. Right. Almost taciturn. Yeah. So he's just surprised about this sudden change in his attitude. Yeah. McGee also mentions that she heard what he had said to Matthew about the regiment and how he was just a mascot. Mm -hmm. And Lord Grantham says that everybody else knows 
what a fool he is. Matthew might as well. McGee says that she doesn't think he's a fool. Isn't that enough? And uh, no, Lord Grantham doesn't care whether McGee thinks he's a fool. He doesn't really care much about McGee at all, no. I don't think. He doesn't care about McGee or his daughters or... Uh, he cares about Matthew. Yeah, he cares about Matthew. Definitely Matthew. Yeah. Maybe the dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Lang is alone in the room where the footman's liveries are kept, and uh, he's standing stock still, having a horrible shell shock episode, you can tell, because there's an overlay of gunfire and and bombs going off. Right. So O'Brien comes in and interrupts, and he's very embarrassed and and, and, and Mm -hmm. nervous, but she informs him that she knows what shell shock looks like because her favorite brother had shell shock, and she was his favorite also. But they sent her brother back to the front, and now he's dead. Yeah. Which is very sad. This is the most humanizing episode we've had with O'Brien. Yeah. And it's just unfortunate. I wish I I had a better sense of when all this happened. Right. Um, Because, you know, you do get that softness from her about Sybil in the first episode. Mm -hmm. And she is being pretty kind through most of this episode. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. bringing Thomas back, you know. Yeah, she's just still got a weak spot for Thomas. But overall, but, she's she's really seems that she's grown. Her heart grew three sizes <laughs> that war. Yeah. But Lang says, you know, he won't be sent back. And uh, O'Brien then says, you know, well, you shouldn't be working at all. But he says he doesn't know what else he'd do that he'd, you know, just go crazy. If right. all he had was sitting around with his shell shock. It's very affecting, and they actually yeah. they do a very nice job overall. I think with the character of Lang, yeah, because uh, I think I I had kind of forgotten about him a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I had too. Because in the last episode, I was talking about how I wish there was a little bit more perspective, and he goes a long way actually to, to providing that perspective. Right. Mrs. Hughes comes in and is surprised to find Lang still downstairs. She thought he'd gone up to bed, and O'Brien covers for him and says that he was just putting back his livery so it didn't get uh, creased. Yes, and so Mrs. Hughes. Seems to kind of sense that something is off because Miss O'Brien's not throwing him under the bus, perhaps. (laughs) But she says, you know, they won't talk about the dinner now. They'll discuss it later. So Lang's off the hook for the evening in terms of kind of getting held accountable for nearly killing Carson. Uh, Right. Who is uh, lying in in bed and Mary comes in. I forget how they sort of about her reputation. Oh, Mary comes in and Carson is startled and she says she hopes her reputation will survive it. Right. Being that, you know, a woman shouldn't be calling on a man in his room alone at night. But since Carson's not really a person, I don't think it matters much. (laughs) Agreed. I would point out that the last time Mary was alone with a man, she killed him. Well, yes, but Carson doesn't know that. (laughs) It's only funny to us and Mary. (laughs) Carson is somewhat unsurprisingly berating himself for having human frailty Mm -hmm. and having ruined the dinner by being mortal. And he says, particularly because he knew that it was Sir Richard Carlyle's first time there and that his opinion mattered to Mary. Mm -hmm. But she says that, oh, he found it exciting. Mm -hmm. Carson asks if they'll be seeing a lot of Sir Richard, meaning is she going to marry him? Mm -hmm. And she uh, doesn't know. He then asks her about Matthew and Mary does not say anything. She doesn't have anything to say about that. And he tells Mary that she should tell Matthew what is in her heart, that if she loves him, she should say so. And then if he dies, which he might, she won't have that regret. Because otherwise she she could be stuck to live with that forever. (laughs) Mary asks, what about Miss Swire? 
Carson doesn't care about Miss Swire. <laughs> Who could prefer Miss Swire to you? He says, proving that Carson is the best dad ever. <laughs> yes. Also, totally right. And then Mrs. Hughes comes in and does her like smirky thing where she's like trying really hard to disguise the fact that she hates Lady Mary and can't stand being anywhere near her. Uh, and she apologizes and, you know, didn't realize she was in there with Carson. Yeah. Mary says, oh, Carson was just boosting my confidence. And she leaves and Mrs. Hughes says, now that's something I wouldn't have thought she was short of. Which is true as... Being alone in Carson's room with him is uh, pretty bold. That's true. Uh, among the myriad of other things Mrs. <laughs> Hughes has been shocked that Lady Mary has done. Back at the old hospital, Thomas asks the blind Lieutenant Courtney, who he had to give his medicine to before. Right. He asks what he did before the war. Uh, turns out Lieutenant Courtney, who is – did I just say he was blind? Yes. Because he's blind. <laughs> in case you didn't understand, blind, wearing bandages – Turns out he was at Oxford, but he only planned to farm and hunt, which seems like a real waste of an education to me. Uh, but yeah. I don't understand how this works. He is really bummed out about his blindness, and he doesn't want to be lied lied to about it or given false hope, because Thomas suggests that maybe it will go away. There have been cases of gas blindness that have cleared up on their own, right. but they're extremely rare, and, and this blind Lieutenant Courtney who keeps reminding me of someone, like, he looks like a guy that was in an episode of Doctor Who, you know? Yeah, but not any specific guy or specific episode. Yeah, he just, just looks like a guy that was in an episode yeah, of Doctor Who. Yeah, he just seems like the type. Yeah. So, um, Stephen Moffat, if you're casting. Or Russell T. Davies. Yeah. I, I feel like he's already been on it. I really, I genuinely do think that. All right. Anyway, uh, then Thomas has to go because he has to go do something that's well he does have a job there he's not just lieutenant courtney's therapist which is good news for lieutenant courtney because thomas would be terrible at that outside on the grounds at downton abbey lord grantham and mcgee are out walking and you can see mary and sir richard trailing a ways behind them Lord Grantham is asking where Rosamond is, and McGee informs him that Rosamond is back hanging out with the Dowager Countess, which I'm sure is pleasing to everyone, as no one particularly likes either of those people. <laughs> and they discuss Sir Richard Carlyle, and they don't really like him very much. Yeah. This whole sequence here is one of the ones that, that comes up on Downton Abbey fairly often, where it's just this peek into the lives of the idle rich, mm -hmm. where they're just like, what should we do this afternoon? Let's just go wander around our vast estate. I do no... think the dog bounds through, though. Oh, yeah. I think I recall that. All right. We cut back to where Mary is walking with Sir Richard Carlyle, and he says he's extremely hot. Uh, he had the tweed suit that he's wearing made specially for this weekend. But unfortunately, they made him a shooting tweed and not a walking tweed. <laughs> well. And uh, he doesn't know the difference between those things because he is not part of the nobility he is very proud for being a self-made man he's made his own fortune the american term would be pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps yes he and mary talk a little bit about you know their classes are very different and you know she knows all of the proper ways to do things and behave and he doesn't and he is is hoping uh that she will help him learn the distinctions she asks if he's testing her a bit with this visit and he says yeah a little bit and she wants, he wants to know if that is shocking. And she says that she is unshockable. <laughs> and he is intrigued by this. Yeah. Also very attractive. <laughs> He's like, really? Because I plan to be quite shocking throughout my life. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting scene. 
Well, I mean, they're both strong personalities. I mean, he certainly is a stronger personality than Matthew. Yeah, uh, that's true. You know, whatever you may think of their respective merits, he's he's, he's got a... He knows what he wants a bit more. Yeah. Well, and he, he is older. True. He's not terribly old. He's not, you know, Sir Anthony Strallen old. Right. Or even but, Lord Grantham old. Yeah, but noticeably old. Yeah. Yeah. The Dowager Countess and Rosamond are uh, having a conversation discussing whether or not it's right for Mary to have this, you know, loveless marriage that they've all decided it would be. I don't understand how they've all formed such a negative opinion of him. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know. It's, it's part of the whole Julian Fellows tell, don't show promise. Right. But it's like, I don't see that he's done anything wrong. Yeah. That would, I mean, I totally sympathize with him standing over against a wall while their <laughs> butler has presumably a heart attack. I mean, that's... Yeah, well, he didn't, you know, he's... He's correctly assessed that he has nothing to offer in that right. situation. Agreed. And I just I just don't understand. There's nothing in his demeanor mm. that suggests that they should all dislike him. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I think they're all just being snobby. They just don't like his newspapers. <laughs> That's all there is to or it. Or his tweed. <laughs> well, I mean, he did wear a shooting tweed, Kelly. Come on. <laughs> what a maroon. <laughs> You remember that date we went on where I wore a shooting tweed? You were mortified. I I was, and I nearly killed you. (laughs) By dropping a sauce on Lady Edith. (laughs) No, if you want to kill me, drop a sauce on Lady Mary. (laughs) We really need to get you that uh, I Heart Mary t-shirt made. (laughs) Yeah. But yes, they're Dowager Countess and Rosamond discussing Mary, and Rosamond suggests that, or uh, observes, that Mary seems to have blotted her copybook somehow which is the best euphemism for killing a turk with your vagina i've ever heard (laughs) well and it's interesting too because the dowager countess knows the whole story right she knows why it's been so hard for mary to get any play right and rosamond doesn't know but she has heard the rumors i assume she knows the whole story at this point right i can't imagine living in in london yeah but rosamond hasn't told anyone in her family what she knows Mm. so she and the dowager counters are both acting as if they have no idea why mary's a spinster (laughs) yeah which for two such self-aware strong-willed women is kind of weird to me but yeah, but Rosamond is in favor of Sir Richard Carlyle. He'll give Mary a position, as she calls it, which I believe I finally understand means money mm. in these things. Because that gets bandied about in a lot of these sort of marriage plot things where it's like, oh, he'll give me a position. Yeah. Which I always assumed was associated with the title. Right. That the title and the position were synonymous, but I don't think that's true. It turns out that Rosamond's dead husband was, number one, named Marmaduke. Again, British names. And uh, he was the grandson of a manufacturer? Something along those lines, uh, So yes. she married the the inheritor of the spoils of a self-made man. Well, they have a little back and forth about it, that the Dowager Countess is accusing Marmaduke's parentage. Right, because Rosamond says that, like, his mother's... His mother was the daughter of a baronet, mm-hmm. and the Dowager Countess says, well, in any case, they were no great threat to the Plantagenets. Which is fantastic. Yes. Yeah, and so it basically sounds like Rosamond just wants Mary to live the same life that she lived, which Mary has expressed interest in doing in the <laughs> yeah. past. So. And uh, Rosamond seems, you know, bitterly happy. Yeah, you know, she's not hurting for money or anything else except yeah. for, like, personal fulfillment. But <laughs> Mary doesn't seem too optimistic about that being in her future anyway. The Dowager Countess amazingly calls Lavinia a little blonde piece, <laughs> which is great. I'm going to start calling everyone I know who's a blonde a little blonde piece. Good to know. Incidentally, I am blonde. 
<laughs> Just be looking at yourself in the mirror every morning, you little blonde piece. <laughs> Thomas is reading a letter to Lieutenant Courtney because Lieutenant Courtney's blind. <gasps> right. Apparently, it's uh, relating that his brother Jack, Lieutenant Courtney's brother Jack, is, uh, you know, says something. And Lieutenant Courtney cuts him off at that point. Apparently, Jack is his younger brother who's really excited that Lieutenant Courtney is blind because now Jack is just going to take over everything. Yeah, and it's not clear what everything is. Right. It's like, is it this farm you've purported to be mm-hmm. in your future? You're hunting, you're fishing, your yeah. Oxford education. <laughs> right. Does or- that does he get your degree if you're blinded? <laughs> like is that is that how colleges work then? If an Oxford graduate is blinded, his degree is to be conferred on the eldest living male relative. <laughs> but it doesn't make sense for his brother to be so stoked about replacing him it, because if his brother is of an age with him, mm-hmm. his brother really ought to be over there fighting the Jerry's. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, that's not important. What is important is that Thomas tries to get all it gets better on Lieutenant, on Lieutenant <laughs> Courtney. And he encourages him not to be a victim and be pushed around because he's gay, but not in so many words. So, I mean, my reading on this whole scenario is that both Thomas and Lieutenant Courtney are gay. Right. And I'm not sure. I think that our opinion about Lieutenant Courtney's gayness is basically what Thomas sees, which is that he might well be, but you can't come out and say anything, and so you've just got to hint and hint yeah. around because that's, that's. I mean, what life I think like. having my years of acting school <laughs> to back me up, that would be the most interesting choice. I, I mean, it's very plausible. Well, and it's not just that; it's because you know, because Thomas is sort of vaguely saying everybody's always pushed Thomas around because he's different, right? And then Lieutenant, Lieutenant Courtney asks how. And Thomas is just like, oh, never mind. But then Lieutenant Courtney claps Thomas on the knee. Mm-hmm. To me, that's kind of what pushes it over the edge from speculation into, okay. Yeah. This is really potentially Could that be. he's, he may, I think he's at least bicurious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one thing I, that I also think about it is I sort of had the feeling that I'm supposed to be thinking to myself, oh, well, I guess he's evil, but it's because he's been discriminated against all his life or whatever for being gay. I'm like, but he was a sociopath anyway. Yeah. Like, this is just... Well, and I don't see anybody at Downton discriminating against him because he's gay. Right. They only discriminate against him because he's an asshole. Yeah. I mean, again, Julian Fellows is telling us that Thomas has had this whole life. Right. But we're not seeing any evidence of it whatsoever. Right. I mean, he's always the antagonist. He's always the instigator. Yeah. You know, the only time we've seen him not be the instigator is when, you know, World War One was oppressing him. <laughs> right. Which I don't think that's, you know, yeah. it was oppressing everyone. It was. It was a world war. <laughs> no, and I just, I think there was a real missed opportunity here to really explore Thomas as a gay man mm-hmm. that just gets totally squandered. Yeah. You know, whether it's because he is concurrently a sociopath and gay or whether it's because uh, Julian Fellows' response to gay people is the same as Lord Grantham's to the female reproductive system. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Carlisle is outside on the grounds with Lavinia, and he is threatening her. Like, like, bodily. Yeah. Like, he's, like, shaking her. Like, never shake a baby shaking her. Yeah. And he's has some sort of power over her that he's threatening her with. We come in the middle. We don't know what they're talking about. But Lazy Rosamond is also coming in in the middle. <laughs> he said Lazy Rosamond, <laughs> which is also accurate. <laughs> yes. The Lazy Lady Rosamond <laughs> also is walking by and overhears this 
disturbing conversation. Lavinia sees her, Sir Richard Carlyle sees Lavinia see her and turns around and is like, oh, we were just... Talking about old times! Nobody was threatening anybody. Or... Waka, waka, waka! <laughs> no blackmail here. And Lady Rosamond uh, exhibiting her excellent breeding. Well, she corrects him because he calls her Lady Painswick. Right. And she says, oh, no, it's Lady Rosamond. Yes. And he's like, oh, I'll get it eventually. And she's like, yes, well, I'm going to go write some letters. <laughs> like, he totally does a hor- like. Yeah. He does a terrible, terrible job of covering it up. But yeah. she's too well-bred to notice. It's true. I also, I don't know if you even know this offhand, but why, under what circumstances, it's Painswick versus Rosamond. I honestly don't know. Okay. Um, well, fair enough. Uh, because so, it's a totally different nomenclature if she's not nobility by marriage. Right. I mean, she's still a lady, apparently. Yeah. Well, that's a whole new area for research to, to, <laughs> to think about. Quick, cousins, start <laughs> your Wikipedia engines. <laughs> We're really starting to exhaust Wikipedia, though, honestly. Like, yeah, they we- don't have as much information as you would think on this era. Yeah. Um, Quick, start your Edwardian promenade engines. <laughs> Back on the farm, Edith is uh, watching Farmer Drake loading hay onto a wagon, and they decide to have a beer break, mm-hmm. which we're going to have one as soon as this podcast is over, yes. just so everybody's aware. It's St. Patrick's Day! Hooray! If only there was more Branson in this episode. I know! <laughs> anyway, Edith offers to teach Farmer Drake to drive. Uh, which is a sensible thing, clearly something that needs to be done around the farm. Yeah, he could also save after the war not having to hire anybody to help him farm. It's true. But he refuses because he likes Edith's face. Mm-hmm. He's he... in a limited group there. <laughs> yes. They exist. We're not saying they don't. <laughs> yes. And he is Edith's number one fan mm-hmm. and does not want her to not be at the farm. As he is telling her this, Mrs. Drake comes on by. And helpfully informs Farmer Drake, Farmer Drake that he needs to go into town and get the bone meal so that he can be back in time to feed the cows. Edith makes a joke that is either as stupid or more stupid <laughs> than McGee's previous joke about balancing numbers in the country. And she says, well, what's the rush? They could have a midnight feast. <laughs> Which is fucking insensitive. It, it's... It isn't sensitive. I will say that McGee's joke about balancing numbers is still worse because nobody laughed at that one. That's Whereas true. Whereas this joke, Farmer Drake laughs. Yeah. But look, man, you have to feed the pigs on a set schedule. Yes. Like, it's a farm. Yeah. It's, all right? Yeah. This isn't like raising a kid, okay? <laughs> you have to feed them on time all the time. Yes. And this is what Mrs. Drake was saying. It's like, hey, our life is bone meal and feeding cows. Yeah. It's- not pretty ladies. <laughs> Just like I say to you every day. (laughs) Outside at the hospital, Thomas and Nurse Crawley, which is apparently what I'm calling Sybil in these recaps now. Well, she's wearing that uniform. uh, They assist Lieutenant Courtney in walking with a stick. So they've set up a little obstacle course for him to to try and and make his way through. Mm -hmm. Major Clarkson comes out and informs him that he will be moved to Farley Hall, which is the uh, estate that's been converted into a convalescence uh, home. Lieutenant Courtney does not want to leave, but the beds at the hospital are needed for people to die in. Right. Uh, Since he's not going to die, this is not the place for him. Correct. And Thomas sticks up for 
Lieutenant Courtney and, and he and Sybil both just can't understand why he can't just stay yeah. since apparently they're both spending all of their valuable time helping this one blind guy. Right. Uh, who has no other wounds, by yeah. the way. And there's plenty of other blind people living healthy, if somewhat circumscribed lives yeah. at this time. In Major Clarkson's office, he yells at Thomas for expressing his opinion. And then Sybil barges in and says, well, would you like to know what I think? And Major Clarkson is like, no. No. I'm the major. <laughs> yeah. This is his hospital. And I'm completely on his side here. Yeah. Like, come on. It's yeah. a war. As Cousin Isabel said, one episode prior, yeah. everyone is a special case to someone, yeah. even Mr. Doctor Who guy. Right. Like, and they're, and in, especially in this case, they're not sending Lieutenant Courtney back to the front. They're sending him to a convalescent home, mm-hmm. which is, A, not going to be as crowded with dying people. Mm-hmm. I, and probably there's a very nice, you know, gay medical officer and attractive young nurse there as well to help him, like, figure out how to navigate his new life. Yeah. He doesn't even know how attractive either one of them is. <laughs> That's mean. <laughs> that it may be. Mrs. Hughes tells Carson about the new dining arrangement, which, of course, he does not like, as it involves maids. Mm-hmm. But they both agree that Lang is not going to be anywhere near dinner ever again. Because Lang, less than sign maids. Which, <laughs> yes. as far as Carson is concerned, is the worst thing that can happen to you. Yeah. As a man. (laughs) Carson is missing Bates, and, you know, as uh, everybody at Downton seems to be, it's like he's the king or something. Of (laughs) Basilvania. Mrs. Hughes uh, just tells him to calm down, because he almost died. Mm -hmm. He should should really chill out. Yeah. He, you know, he should take some drinks, medicinally, (laughs) at this point, I think. He, in fact, was just asking her for the wine ledger, Mm -hmm. so he could find himself something nice, Mm -hmm. and, uh... Perfect crime. No one would ever know. Uh, he could get Lady Sybil to sneak him some morphine from the hospital. Man. Her family funds it. There's got to be some perks. <laughs> All the morphine you can eat. <laughs> Wrong war. <laughs> In Lady Mary's room, Lady Mary is getting undressed. And we think there's a little bit of a continuity issue here. Right. And actually it ties into a slight continuity issue earlier in the episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the scene where Molesley is asking Anna about uh, Bridget Jones and whatnot, right. she is carrying a red dress. And she says that Lady Mary wants to wear that dress to dinner that night. Mm-hmm. Lady Mary does not wear that dress. She wears a really stunning, beautiful number. Yeah. Which she is still wearing in this scene. Right. Which can't possibly be the same day as that dinner. Right. Because, like, Carson's been, you know, seen to and they've had this whole thing at the hospital mm-hmm. with Lieutenant Courtney. Like, it's, it's clearly the next day. Right. At least. Right. And we, there is never any clear indication to us how many days that uh, Edith has been down on the farm. <laughs> right. It's true. But in any case, we know that Mary has not, in fact, been wearing this dress for the last few days. You know, war shortages being what they are, she is entertaining a male suitor. I just don't <laughs> think it's going to happen. Right. Agreed. But so what we assume is that they just they put this in out of order because they wanted to break up these scenes involving Lieutenant Courtney, and they just didn't have anything else that fit chronologically, and they thought we wouldn't notice. And uh, we almost didn't, but then we watched the episode again, and we're like, aha, caught you, Julian Fellows. Yep. Boom comic book store guy out 
Moving along, Mary is uh, dis-accessorizing for the evening, and Lady Rosamond is in there, and she asks Mary how Sir Richard Carlyle knows Miss Lavinia Swire. Mm. Mary does not know, but she assumes that they met in London as they both lived there. Anna comes in, and Rosamond beats a hasty retreat as she wisely does not gossip in front of servants, as far as we can tell. Mary asks Anna how Carson's doing. She tells him that he's, you know, doing fine and that Mrs. Hughes is having a hard time keeping him keeping him down in bed. Yeah. And Mary tells Anna about Carson's advice to her regarding Matthew. And Anna says that honesty is generally the best policy and that one regrets being honest less often than one regrets telling lies. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty sound advice. Yeah, because Anna's basically giving the same advice as Carson. But she's just saying, here are the general principles mm-hmm. that lead me to this. I'm not saying that you should do the specific thing. I, I wish I had Anna and Carson around to advise me on my matters of the heart. Yeah. And, Man. The, and matters of the wine ledger. <laughs> but back at the hospital, there's blood on the floor because guess what? Lieutenant Courtney has slit his wrist. Of course he did. Yes, he did. Because he prefers death to... Farley Hall, apparently. Well, to be fair, we've never been to Farley Hall. <laughs> That's true. It might be a rat hole. <laughs> it could be. And we get a scene of Thomas crying alone, which is somewhat affecting. He was yeah. much more affecting in the previous episode when he wasn't being a jerk to everybody at Downton <laughs> Abbey again. Yeah. Outside the hospital, Major Clarkson is chatting with Cousin Isabel and Lady Sybil, and he tells them that Lieutenant Courtney smuggled a razor into his bed, which, duh. Right. We all know how people kill themselves in the hospital. <laughs> Isabel says that the obvious solution to not being able to have people convalesce at at the hospital. Well, and having to ship them off to Farley Hall, where apparently people would rather die than go. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, they need to turn Downton Abbey into a convalescence home, which Major Clarkson thinks that Lord and Lady Grantham would never allow. But Sybil says she wants to help convince her parents, and she thinks that given that a uh, upper-class poofter has killed himself, of course that they will be convinced by this. Right, yeah, that's, they're going to be, what, what? Somebody I've never heard of has killed himself? (laughs) Throw open my doors, let everybody in! What? (laughs) Anyway, his issue was that he couldn't stay at the hospital with Sybil and Thomas. And it's like, that doesn't really like, yeah, if anybody else gets an attachment to them, they're still going to have to go somewhere else. Right. Uh, Anyway, boo, (laughs) this subplot can eat my poo. (laughs) (laughs) All right. At the train depot, Sir Richard is heading back to London and Mary is off there to see him off. Uh, She is reluctant to call him Richard. But he feels that she should because he feels that they should get married. <gasps> OMG. I know. It's very dramatic, very exciting. But he's he's doing it in a very business-like fashion. Like me that time. <laughs> Indeed. He says that they can be a good team. They would work well together. Mary says that she believes it's traditional to make at least some mention of love. He says that he could do that, but he doesn't really care to yeah he says it's more important that they can build something worth having but my question is can they build something worth ruining (laughs) good question branson is carrying a basket as soldiers are loaded off trucks and into the hospital which has presumably been cleared of its convalescers off to farley hall so he gives the basket to sybil it's it's uh, a lunch that's been sent for her to eat uh and i'm like are you the only nurse there (laughs) Well, are you the only nurse that gets to eat? 
Well, and she apparently does not plan to. She's yeah. sure she will be too busy to eat. So uh, Anyway, Branson asks Sybil if nursing is what she expected, and she says it's worse than she could have ever possibly imagined. But she would never go back to her life before the war, and Branson would be making a fist pump if he knew what that was. <laughs> would you like to be part of an armed rebellion in Ireland? <laughs> After the war, of course. <laughs> In the garden outside Crawley House, Mary comes upon Lavinia, who is sniffling, and Mary asks what's the matter. Uh, Lavinia first asks if Mary is looking for Matthew, but it turns out Matthew has to leave a day early, and Lavinia is understandably bummed that he is going to be gone. Mary tries to reassure her by saying, oh, he's only going off with his general to do this, you know, patriotic recruitment tour. Lavinia says, yeah, but he is going to have to go back to the front, and Mary insists that he'll come through it all right. Uh, but her platitudes do not work on Lavinia. Mm. And uh, suddenly, I like her so much better. Because, well, she says, you know, you don't know that. Right. Nobody knows. And, you know, she says that she she doesn't know what she would do if Matthew died. She says she wouldn't want to go on living. Mm-hmm. And you can see in Mary's face, she's like, hmm. Okay. What about if he stayed living, but he dumped you and married me? How would that be? Uh, at this point, Matthew Waltz is up all, what's doing? Which is hilarious. <laughs> Way to go, hipster Matthew. You are awesome. <laughs> Lavinia just like rushes off, which is totally what you want to do when your fiancé shows up to talk to his old fiancé. <laughs> right. Because that's definitely going to make sure they don't get back together. <laughs> but then, like, Matthew starts talking to Mary, but I guess Lavinia, like, ran inside the house and then ran back outside. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, 30 seconds later, she's like, Mary, will you stay for luncheon? <laughs> and Mary's like, no, I'm <laughs> not going to, you weirdo. <laughs> so she then declines to uh, tell Matthew about her actual reason for visiting, which was presumably to make a clean breast of her raging love for him. Right. But so she says that he was, she was just seeing if he was still coming to dinner at the big house that night. And he's like, yeah, duh. He recognizes that this is, that that is clearly a dumb thing for her to have been yeah. doing. But she, she says she just needed an excuse for a walk. Mm-hmm. Anna says that Ethel told her that Molesley wanted to see her. All, all messages in Downton Abbey are routed through Ethel. Which seems like a bad idea <laughs> to me. Yes. Um, and Molesley, makes his move at long last he he says that he's he he wants to be with her you know he basically you're not allowed to say do you want to be my girlfriend because that word doesn't exist Mm -hmm. but uh that's what he's saying and she says that she takes it as a compliment which of course as people like branson are well aware means no (laughs) um and then goes on see and this is here she makes a mistake she should have just said i take it as a compliment but no I can't. End conversation. Well, she could have said, no, I'm still in love with Mr. Bates, and he's the only person I'll ever love. You know, good luck to you. Have you tried Ethel? Because <laughs> she is hot to try. <laughs> but no, she, in fact, in, goes on this long analogy about if you had a child and your child was sent to the moon then you'd be sad or something like that. Well, and you would, like, you would always be thinking about the child. Right. And, like, what if you had other children that weren't sent to the moon? Yeah. Wouldn't you have to feed them still? <laughs> right. Perhaps not as regularly as pigs. <laughs> but still, from what I understand, children do require some modicum of your attention. And also, yeah. maybe don't compare the love of your life to a child that you had, because that just puts all kinds of weird 
Oedipal connotations on said relationship. Yes. Anyway, it's very squicky. And uh, we don't like it when Julian Fellows decides to express things through Anna because (laughs) it's creepy and weird. Yeah. Back at the farm. (laughs) Edith is still at the farm. What day is it? And they're they're almost done with the farming, which is impossible. Okay, <laughs> right. I have read all the Little House on the Prairie <laughs> books. You are never done with farming. Yeah, you're dead, and you're still farming. That's right. Okay, you're turning into compost <laughs> for your crops. Anyway, but Farmer Drake is just playing along and saying, "Oh, we'll have to invent some tasks so you can stick around." And uh, then they start making out. Yep, which is weird. And I'm sitting there going, Edith. I can't believe I'm saying this, but you can do better. She really can. Yeah. Like, what about Molesley? If you're going <laughs> to slum it, at least he likes to read. Uh, unfortunately, Mrs. Drake notices them in this little clinch. She's far enough away from the barn that they can't see her. Yeah. Not that they could see past each other's noses anyway. <laughs> but, you know, her, her face is one of displeasure. Yes. She is not pleased that this, you know, uppity dilettante has come into her farm and is yes. trying to steal her homely farmer away from her. I'm, and I'm sure that both of them are shocked by this. I'm sure they're both saying, what? Mrs. Drake, the woman who has interrupted every conversation we've ever had, saw us? Like, <laughs> when she, are, she knows what's up. When are they going to figure out that Mrs. Drake is everywhere? <laughs> This brings us to the second of our recurring segments, Tom Repeats History, and in which our resident land girl lover, Tom, will uh, give us a little insight into the history involved in this episode. All right. So what I'm going over in this particular edition is just a little bit about what women did sort of in the workplace or um, just sort of generally on the home front during World War One. Did they call it the home front? I believe they did. I can only say for sure that Wikipedia's section was headlined The Home Front. Fair enough. So there's that. And this is actually an area where I I did start to run into some trouble with Wikipedia and just the internet in general trying to track down some of this information. Because there were various things set up for women to go out and basically replace men, uh, not just in the factories and in, in the cities and that sort of thing, but out in the country. There was the Women's Forestry Corps, which was you know going out and chopping down trees and everything else they like that. They were lumberjacks. They were actually... I'm not sure if this was only the version in World War II that this term came about, but they were called lumberjills. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I'm a lumberjill, and that's okay. <laughs> it sure is. And the Women's Forage Corps, which was specifically to go around the country and harvest hay to supply the horses. Oh, on the I front. thought they were proto freegans. <laughs> Sorry, but no. Probably a lot of hate in that hay. <laughs> there, there probably was. <laughs> um, and I couldn't find a lot of information about those. Like, I, would, I just found a lot of pictures captioned, like, Women of the Women's Forage Corps bailing hay or something and actually it was also i found things of various people saying my grandmother was in this i'm trying to find information and things like that Hmm. so struck by one of our cousins earlier who had a grandmother i believe that was a nurse Mm -hmm. it was actually genealogy websites i was starting to find more information about some of these things interesting yeah uh but also the other one that i found a bit more detail about uh, was the women's land army which the constituents of were called land girls and this was specifically for farm work and it was appears to have been pretty much the biggest of these sort of organizations and it was just recruiting women to go out and take the place on farms across 
the country of the farmhands that had been sent off to the front. Um, so really exactly what Edith was doing, except there was a whole official like organization. Yeah, they probably got instructed to not make out with the farmers. <laughs> they probably did. And I imagine those instructions were not always heeded, human sexuality being what it is. True. But they would basically, they were sent out to the farms, and they were paid by the farmers, and in many cases uh, underpaid. But they would go out there and, you know, just do everything that you do on a farm, pull out stumps and plow and uh, everything else like that. And so this was really something that got people across the country seeing women do completely unfeminine things, you know, and of course wearing, they had a uniform, but it was very functional trousers, you know, tough uh, material and all that sort of thing. Not ladylike at all. Dungarees, eh? Mm Mm-hmm. So this really was something that just visibly in every farm in the country, you could see women tackling roles that they hadn't previously well, been Well, and, and presumably of. that gave a huge boost to the fact that, you know, British women did get the vote right after World War One. Yes. There wasn't any lag time. Yes. There was also, of course, a lot of direct war work, which was, you know, making munitions, making gas masks, making, you know, all the factory work on the home front that needed to be done, uh, women were doing it, including those that made the TNT shells. These women were known as the Canary Girls, which is a cute, fun name. It was called that because TNT is kind of poisonous and it turns your skin yellow. Oh, wow. Yeah. I thought it was because they were, like, working with something dangerous, you know, right. much like you would send a canary down a mine shaft. Yeah. But good to know. Yeah. I wonder if that's what happened to Snooky. <laughs> I suspect not. I don't, you know, I don't know what MTV's internship program is like. There <laughs> could be something like that. And there were also a few women in various countries, but specifically British women for our purposes, uh, that actually did fight in the war. There were very few. One of them, Flora Sand- Sands, I believe it's S-A-N-D-E-S. She, at the very beginning of the war, when it first broke out, went to Serbia which, as you recall, that was where this all started, was a war between Serbia and Austria. She went to help defend the Serbs, initially as part of an ambulance corps, but at some point the unit that she was with uh, was in a fight. They needed somebody to run a gun, you know, to shoot a gun, and they pulled her in. She wound up actually enrolling, becoming an officer, uh, and she wound up receiving the Star of Kara George, which was the highest honor in the Serbian army. Uh, so she's the only British woman to have officially enlisted and fought in World War I. But she had to enlist in the Serbian army? Correct, yes. Yeah, I had, I had read a little bit uh, when I was looking at who was wearing trousers and getting their hair cut short. Apparently there were a fair number of Russian women. Yes. Uh, but the Russian have always been tougher than everyone else, so I'm not totally <laughs> shocked. Yes. All right. And there's one, one more woman that I wanted to point out being on the front, uh, Dorothy Lawrence. Uh, she was a female reporter. And she wanted to report from the front lines. But at the time, even male reporters, they were not letting anybody uh, get to the front. She kind of went there anyway, dressed up like a man, went on the front, fought there for 10 days as part of a mining unit, going off and sleeping in the woods because she didn't actually have any quarters to sleep in because she wasn't really part of the, the army. She wound up sort of turning herself in, being like, hey, I've been out here. They uh, imprisoned her as a spy interrogated for her for a long time, accusing her of being a camp follower, which means a prostitute. Oh, I know what a camp follower is, Tom. Yes. 
she did not. She did not know the term, and so the <laughs> the interrogation was apparently just wildly confusing for quite a while mm-hmm. because she did not even understand what they were accusing her of. She wound up having they only let her go if she swore that she would not write about her experiences during the war. So she her whole point was to get journalism out of this, and she wasn't allowed to. She published something after the war, but it was censored by the war office and just basically lost. And, you know, somebody came across it decades later, and she wound up being institutionalized after accusing somebody of raping her. She was put into an insane asylum and died there 40 years later. And then at some point after that, somebody found her book and found out that she had done all this stuff. So it's just like kind of a horrifying, sad story that I read. I'm really upset now. And wanted to share with everybody. Thank you for the most depressing Tom Repeats history ever. And I feel like that's not even the first time I've said that. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I just couldn't help no, sharing so that story. it's so weird because I feel like we know so much about, in general, about World War II. Mm-hmm. But we don't know anything about World War I. Like, it's mm-hmm. not as, as popular. Right. Well, and even in Downton Abbey, I mean, he's just eliding over so much of what happened. I mean, he, he's, you know, squeezing, like, Four years of history into like mm-hmm. seven episodes or something, right? And I mean, obviously, this is primarily concerned with being a relationship drama, right? But man, I mean, there's just so much material. Yeah. Well, and we, you know, because World War One, even more than World War Two, America didn't come in until close to the end. Yeah. So that's part of it. But yeah, it's something that people should know more about. So people who want to win Oscars, <laughs> listen up. You should totally do a good movie about World War One. Not starring a horse. Yeah, definitely not starring a horse. All right, well, thank you, Tom, for uh, depressing the hell out of us. You're welcome. Back in the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore is back to reprimanding Daisy, but we will not tell you what that sounds like as we have declared a character ceasefire. That's right. And Lord Grantham has come down, and he wants to see Mrs. Patmore. Mrs. Hughes once again offers up her study, where Lord Grantham informs Mrs. Patmore that her nephew is not only dead, he is a deserter who was shot for cowardice. Yeah. At the first sign of female emotion, Lord Grantham calls Mrs. Hughes inside, uh, but then he's surprisingly compassionate, and because Mrs. Patmore is about to spill to Mrs. Hughes right. the news that Archie Philpotts is a dirty, dirty traitor. <laughs> but Lord Grantham says, no, no one else needs to know. Right. You know, let let everyone think that he died a hero because this isn't public knowledge. It really doesn't matter. Yeah. And it's just sort of a horrible thing. I feel like I should say more about it, but I... I just don't think you should shoot people for cowardice. Like, I guess that's what prevents people from running away. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, they don't anymore. Well, yeah. I mean, again, in that war in particular, you would have had to. Mm -hmm. It was, why would anybody stay? Because they left their photo of Lavinia in the trenches. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They have to go back and get it. (laughs) The Dowager Countess is not happy about the Downton Hospital idea of throwing their home open to convalescing soldiers. Which I really would have liked to have seen the scene where that was initially pitched to Lord and Lady Grantham. Yeah. I mean, I would have, you know, I love seeing Maggie Smith get into high dudgeon about things. Right. But you can easily have her do that and still show them... Yeah. Uh, you know, getting, getting yeah. introduced like maybe to we, the idea. we could have heard a little bit less about Elizabeth and her German garden. Yeah. That whole thing. I, I, or Mr. Bates being a child who was sent to the moon. <laughs> right. I would gladly sacrifice the Mr. Bates as the little prince analogy. <laughs> but the Dowager Countess goes a little too far 
by saying that she will refuse, that she's not going to allow it to happen. And McGee points out that it is not the Dowager Countess's home anymore. It is her home and Lord Grantham's, and she storms out. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know... You know, fair play to McGee. Yeah. She rarely asserts herself, particularly to the Dowager Countess, yeah. and she did a very nice job here. Agreed. Lord Grantham is talking to Matthew about what it's like at the hospital, presumably kind of feeling out what he's about to be getting himself into. Mm-hmm. And Matthew tells him that the men at the front pray to be spared or that a bullet kills them cleanly. And most of the men he's seen at the hospital found that prayer unanswered. Yeah. Which is a very grim and I think pretty accurate way of describing it. Yeah. So uh, yeah. 10 points to Matthew. <laughs> yes. 10 points to Crawley House. <laughs> Mrs. Patmore announces the servants' dinner will be in 20 minutes. And William shows up in his uniform, and Daisy runs up to see him, and they're very cute together, as much as I kind of dislike William. But they are cute, and Mrs. Patmore starts getting emotional about it. Uh, which means I start crying. Yes. Because when Mrs. Patmore starts to lose it, I just can't, I can't handle it. Yeah, it's, it's true. It is. It's like when my stoic, depression-era grandmother cries. I'm just like, I don't know what's going on, Jim. <laughs> yeah. The setter cannot hold. <laughs> In the servants' hall, Anna compliments William on how smart he looks in his new uniform and then foolishly leaves him alone with Lang, who waxes all Eric Marie remark on uh, <laughs> on World War One. William, though, he believes in what they're fighting for and he wants to go and, and do his bit. And Lang says, God help you. And, and here is where, and I don't even mean this is personally about William because, you know, he's got to, he's in the war, he needs to believe in it. But I'm like, do you believe in what you're fighting for? Because as I recall, what you're fighting for is you're trying to defend Belgium because Germany attacked Belgium in order to attack France to keep France from helping them when they attack Russia to keep Russia from helping Serbia when Austria attacks Serbia. Is that what you believe in? He doesn't. But, I mean, that's not how patriotism works. I know. I mean, you know, the higher-ups, they know all that. But all they've said is, you're British, you need to fight in this war. Yeah. Is William British? Yes, he is. Does he want to fight in the war? Yes, he does. So mission accomplished. Yeah. And like I said, I don't truly fault William himself for it. It just is frustrating to me to watch it. Matthew comments that Edith looks jolly. In the drawing room after dinner. (laughs) Yes. And Mary Fake makes fun of her for farming. Which she was excited about before. She was drunk. <laughs> That's, I, I guess we've proved it. And I think at this, this is the time at which she's right. Because come on, Edith, farming. <laughs> Matthew asks Mary if she is about to be happy, meaning about to marry Richard Carlyle. And uh, once again, we, uh, we don't know. Downstairs, Daisy tells Mrs. Patmore that she wishes she hadn't let William think that they're sweethearts. And... Mrs. Patmore puts a lot of pressure on Daisy by telling her, you know, you don't have to marry him after the war, but you can't break his heart and send him off into battle. Right. Uh, Which... Like, yes and no. (laughs) I agree with you. And I think that Daisy has the right to her own feelings, whatever they Mm -hmm. may be. But Mrs. Patmore is clearly thinking, you've got to be... If if you lose your nerve, they'll shoot you Mm -hmm. and disgrace you forever. Yeah. No, so, you know, she's coming at it from a very different viewpoint than Daisy, mm-hmm. who wants to be morally correct, but is probably about to find that war uh, is not so black and white Yeah, as the kitchen of Downton Abbey. <laughs> yes. Mary worries that Sir Richard will be put off by his visit to Downton Abbey, 
what, which is weird because he just proposed to you. <laughs> but Anna says that he, he won't. He, and he loves it when butlers collapse. <laughs> He's got a whole feature in his paper. <laughs> uh, Mary reveals to Anna that she plans to accept uh, Sir Richard Carlyle's proposal, despite the fact that she doesn't love him more than anyone in the world, like Anna loved Bates, uh, which is Anna's criteria for getting married. But right. again... Anna doesn't need a position. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know... That's true. I think Anna's giving her really sound advice as far as it goes. Right. But, you know, Mary has considerations, which, foolish as they may be, Mm -hmm. to those of us who do not have a position or a title, you know, are nonetheless considerations for her and her family. And as as Anna says, I'm not your ladyship. It's true. So... Anna's so diplomatic. She is. Uh, If she had been dealing with Serbia, this never would have happened. (laughs) Agreed. Minister Anna, now we're talking. <laughs> Spin off! <laughs> Downstairs at breakfast, Carson is serving. Uh, he seems to be more or less back to his old self. And as he says, breakfast is not a very taxing duty or whatever. And Lord Grantham opens a letter for Edith and reads it, which is odd to me why he opens her letter and reads it. It potentially could have been addressed to him considering the content. I guess that's true. Uh, in any case, it is from Mrs. Drake who says... Thanks. Never come here again. She doesn't mention why. Right. That's that's clear. She doesn't throw any accusations. Well, and I mean, around. and I sus- if if he's opening it, I suspect that she's written to him, sort of hoping to reassert that. Yeah, your dad does own you, by the way. Yeah. And I own my farmer. <laughs> you don't get to come by my farmer anymore. Yeah. Edith looks very upset. You know, she looks very torn up on mm-hmm. her face. She finally was in a place where people thought she was great. Yeah. Or at least one person. Right. And probably the cows <laughs> thought she was awesome. A homely farmer and a couple of cows. <laughs> That's all she ever wanted. <laughs> and uh, Lord Grantham expresses some uncertainty about uh, what Downton becoming a convalescent home will be like. And cut to credits. Yes. Kind of oddly. Usually there's more of a button on the episodes than... Well, you know, I think it's trying to stoke our excitement for Downton becoming a convalescent home. It seems an odd thing to get excited about, but hey, we will see. All right, and now it is time to present the Abbey Awards for this episode. Uh, The Gibson Girl was actually a closer contest than you might think. Lavinia really steps it up in this episode. Yeah, we she were looks very stunning. Impressed. Particularly the beautiful fur collar and coat and hat she's wearing when being shaken by Sir Richard Carlyle. Yeah. Never has anyone being shaken looked so adorable. Yeah. Uh, no, and as as I said about it, I never like anybody wearing fur, and I liked that mm-hmm. one. So. It was very, very tastefully done. Yeah. She she was wearing colors that suited her a lot better, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and it may have been a character thing that, you know, she's like, oh, I have to hang around these people, you know, <laughs> shopping spree. <laughs> but we actually, we had to give it to Mary solely on the basis of the beautiful dress that she wears to the dinner with sir richard carlisle which we later see in a continuity error but oh my gosh it's you know it's nude and it's got this beautiful beading the straps are gorgeous she's wearing a beautiful tiara and a and a long rope necklace yeah it's just gorgeous i mean if if i could choose for a day to look like anyone wearing anything i would look (laughs) like michelle dockery wearing that dress yeah you know and i mean her other outfits weren't you know you know, there was a red one we didn't really like. But it was her- the the other continuity issue dress, the red one. It yeah. looked a little funky. Yeah, but-, but some of her other stuff, it was sort of a modification of a purple outfit she'd worn before mm-hmm. that that I liked better. Um, so no, she looks very good. Yeah, 
So well yeah, and, done, and Mary. Again, I think that the overall costuming in this episode was way better than in the first episode of this series, yeah. which was the case in the first series. So I don't know yeah. what's going on there, but uh, well done. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now we go on to best evasion. This one is tough. Yeah. There was got, a lot of evading happening. That's right. Um, well, I mean, Anna evaded Molesley. Mm-hmm. So there was that. Lieutenant Courtney evaded Farley Hall. <laughs> well, he sure did. Mm-hmm. He, wow, that was a drastic evasion. It really was. All right. Uh, Mrs. Drake evaded Edith's charms <laughs> on, uh, on behalf uh, of her husband. That's true. The rare third-party evasion. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sir Richard Carlyle evaded explanation for uh, harassing Lavinia out on the grounds. Yeah, that's true. So uh, so who, who's going to get the nod then? Uh, fact, uh, who did we say? I think we said the blind guy. I, I think we did. I mean, you, <laughs> A for effort there. Hey. I mean, you can't. You can't evade anything more than uh, than suicide. Yes. Yeah, so congratulations, Lieutenant Doctor Who man Courtney, <laughs> on uh, not having to go to Farley Hall. Well done. Yeah. For best overbite, uh, we're giving it back to reigning champion Edith. That's true. She it's... was really the only overbite on display today, and magnificent as always. Absolutely. And hey, that overbite got a little play. It did. So, so <laughs> good job, overbite. <laughs> And finally, everybody's favorite award, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths. I think it's I think it's a five it's, two weeks in a row. Yeah, but she's really been at the top of her game. Um, I'm just suddenly drawing a blank. Well, she called Lavinia a little blonde piece. She called Lavinia a little blonde piece. I would piece. give her a five for her just on the basis of that. Yes. Uh, she had a little confrontation with Sir Richard Carlyle. Which, was, you know, everybody was willing to hate him, but nobody seemed willing to talk to him apart from her. Uh, yeah, but but she did. What was the other line of hers that I really liked? You're a lady, not a toad of Toad Hall. <laughs> that's right. So uh, that's a pretty good sample. So well yeah. done, Maggie Smith. Keep it up in this next episode. I'm sure the arrival of convalescing soldiers will do nothing but provoke your witty fires. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that is a saying that I just made up. <laughs> so that about does it for Downton Abbey Series 2, Episode 2. And until next time... Up yours downstairs. in your pipe and smoke it.
out in your pipe and smoke it.